the Mabbot Street entrance of Night Town, before which stretches an uncobbled tram siding set with skeleton tracks, red and green will-o'-the-wisps and danger signals. Rows of flimsy houses with gaping doors, rare lamps with faint rainbow fans. Round Rabbi Yotti's halted ice gondola, stunted men and women squabble. They grab wafers between which are wedged lumps of coal and copper snow. Sucking, they scatter slowly. Children. The swan comb of the gondola, high-reared, forges on through the murk, white and blue under a lighthouse. Whistles call and answer. Wait, me love, and I'll be with you. Run behind the stable. A deaf-mute idiot with goggle eyes, his shapeless mouth dribbling, jerks past, shaken in St. Vitus' dance. A chain of children's hands imprisons him. The idiot lifts a palsied left arm and gurgles. Where's the great light? The idiot, gobbing. They release him. He jerks on. A pygmy woman swings on a rope, slung between the railings, counting. A form sprawled against a dustbin, and muffled by its arm and hat, moves. Groans, grinding, growling teeth, and snores again. On a step, a gnome, totting among a rubbish tip, crouches to shoulder a sack of rags and bones. A crone standing by with a smoky oil lamp rams the last bottle in the maw of his sack. He heaves his booty, tugs askew his peak cap, and hobbles off mutely. The crone makes back for her lair, swaying her lamp. A bandy child, a squat on the doorstep with a paper shuttlecock, crawls sidling after her in spurts, clutches her skirt, scrambles up, a drunken navvy grips with both hands the railings of an area, lurching heavily. At a corner, two night watch in shoulder capes, their hands upon their staff holsters, loom tall. A plate crashes. A woman screams. A child wails. Oaths of a man roar. Mutter. Cease. Figures wander, lurk, peer from warrens. In a room lit by a candle stuck in a bottleneck, a slut combs out the tats from the hair of a scrofulous child. Sissy Caffrey's voice, still young, sings shrill from a lane. I gave it to Molly because she was jolly, the leg of the dock, the leg of the dock. Private Carr and Private Compton. Swagger sticks tight in their oxters as they march unsteadily, right about face and burst together from their mouths a volleyed fart. <laughs> Laughter of men from the lane. A horse virago retorts. Signs on your hairy arse. More power to Calvin Gale. More luck to me, Calvin Cootail and Bell Torbus. She sings. I gave it to Nelly to stick in her belly. The leg of the dock, the leg of the dock. Private Carr and Private Compton turn and counter retort, their tunics blood bright in a lamp glow black sockets of caps on their blonde, cropped poles. Stephen Dedalus and Lynch pass through the crowd close to the redcoats. Private Compton jerks his finger. Way for the parson. Private Carr turns and calls. What? Oh, parson? Sissy Caffrey, her voice soaring higher. She has it, she gosses, wherever she pushes, the leg of the dog. Stephen, flourishing the ash plant in his left hand, chants with joy the intuit for Paschal time. Lynch, his jockey cap low on his brow, attends him, a sneer of discontent wrinkling his face. Famished snaggle tusks of an elderly board protrude from the doorway. Her voice whispering huskily. Shh! Come here till I tell you. Maidenhead inside. Stephen, Altius Aliquantulum. Et omne 
quos pervenit aqua ista. The board spits in their trail her jet of venom. Trinity Medicals, fallopian tube, all prick and no pence. Edie Boardman, sniffling, crouched with Bertha Supple, draws her shawl across her nostrils. Edie Boardman, bickering. And, says the one, I seen you a faithful place with your square pusher, the greaser off the railway, in his come-to-bed hat. Did you, says I? That's not for you to say, says I. You never seen me in the man-trap with a married Highlander, says I. The likes of her, stag that one is, stubborn as a mule, and her walk on a two fellas the one time, kill bride the engine driver and Lance Corporal Oliphant. Stephen Triumphalita. He flourishes his ash plant, shivering the lamp image, shattering light over the world. A liver and white spaniel on the prowl slinks after him, growling. Lynch scares it with a kick. So that... Stephen looks behind. So that gesture, not music, not odors, would be a universal language. The gift of tongues rendering visible not the lay sense, but the first entelechy, the structural rhythm. Pornosophical philotheology. Metaphysics in Mecklenburg Street. We have shrew-ridden Shakespeare and hen-pecked Socrates. Even the all-wisest Stagirite was bitted, bridled and mounted by a light of love. Bah! Anyway, who wants two gestures to illustrate a loaf and a jug? This movement illustrates the loaf and jug of bread and wine in Omer. Hold my stick. Damn your yellow stick. Where are we going? Letterous links. To la belle dame sans merci. Georgina Johnson. Ad deam qui letificat juventutem meam. Stephen thrusts the ash plant on him and slowly holds out his hands, his head going back till both hands are a span from his breast, downturned in planes intersecting, the fingers about to part, the left being higher. Which is the jug of bread? It skills not. That or the custom house? Illustrate thou. Here, take your crutch and walk. They pass. Tommy Caffrey scrambles to a gas lamp and, clasping, climbs in spasms. From the top spur he slides down. Jackie Caffrey clasps to climb. The navvy lurches against the lamp. The twins scuttle off in the dark. The navvy, swaying, presses a forefinger against a wing of his nose and ejects from the farther nostril a long, liquid jet of snot. Shouldering the lamp, he staggers away through the crowd with his flaring cresset. Snakes of river fog creep slowly from drains, clefts, cesspools, middens. Arise on all sides stagnant fumes. A glow leaps in the south beyond the seaward reaches of the river. The navvy, staggering forward, cleaves the crowd and lurches towards the tram siding. On the farther side, under the railway bridge, Bloom appears, flushed, panting, cramming bread and chocolate into a side pocket. From Gillen's hairdresser's window, a composite portrait shows him gallant Nelson's image. A concave mirror at the side presents to him lovelorn, long-lost, lugubru buluhum. Grave Gladstone sees him level. Bloom for bloom. He passes, struck by the stare of truckland Wellington. But in the convex mirror, grin unstruck, the bonnevies and fat chuck cheek chops of Jolly Poldy the Rickstick Stolty. At Antonio Rabaiotti's door, Bloom halts, sweated under the bright arc lamps. He disappears. In a moment, he reappears and hurries on. Fish and taters, NG. Ah! He disappears into all houses, the pork butchers, under the downcoming roll shutter. A few moments later, he emerges from under the shutter, puffing poldy, blowing blue hoon. In each hand, he holds a parcel, one containing a lukewarm pig's crew bean, the other a cold sheep's trotter, sprinkled with whole pepper. He gasps, standing upright. Then, bending to one side, he presses a parcel against his rib and groans. Stitch in my side. Why did I run? He takes breath with care and goes forward slowly towards the lamp-set siding. The glow leaps again. What is that? A flasher? Searchlight. He stands at Cormac's corner, watching. Aurora Borealis. Or a steel foundry. Ah, the brigade, of course. South side, anyhow. 
big blaze. Might be his house, Beggar's Bush. We're safe. He hums cheerfully. London's burning, London's burning, on fire, on fire. He catches sight of the navvy lurching through the crowd at the farther side of Talbot Street. I'll miss him. Run, quick. Better cross here. He darts to cross the road. Urchins shout. Two cyclists with lighted paper lanterns a-swing swim by him, grazing him, their bells rattling. Bloom halts, erect, stung by a spasm. He looks round, darts forward suddenly. Through rising fog, a dragon sand-strewer, travelling at caution, slews heavily down upon him, its huge red headlight winking, its trolley hissing on the wire. The motorman bangs his foot gong. The brake cracks violently. Bloom, raising a policeman's white-gloved hand, blunders stiff-legged out of the track. The motorman, thrown forward, pug-nosed on the guide wheel, yells as he slides past over chains and keys. Hey! Ship breaches! Are you doing the hat-trick? Bloom trick leaps to the curbstone and halts again. He brushes a mudflake from his cheek with a parceled hand. No thoroughfare. Close shave that, but cured the stitch. Must take up Sandow's exercises again. On the hands, down. Insure against street accident, too. The providential. He feels his trouser pocket. Poor Mama's panacea. He'll easily catch in tracks or bootlace in a cog. Day the wheel of the Black Mariah peeled off my shoe at Leonard's corner. Third time is the charm. Shoe trick. Insolent driver, I ought to report him. Tension makes them nervous. Might be the fellow balked me this morning with that horsey woman. Same style of beauty. Quick of him all the same. The stiff walk. True words spoken in jest. That awful cramp in Lad Lane, something poisonous I ate. Emblem of luck. Why? Probably lost cattle. Mark of the beast. He closes his eyes an instant. Bit light in the head. Monthly. Or effect of the other. Brain fog fag. That tired feeling. Too much for me now. Oh. A sinister figure leans on plaited legs against O'Byrne's wall. A visage unknown, injected with dark mercury. From under a wide-leaved sombrero, the figure regards him with evil eye. Buenas noches, senorita Blanca. Que caia is esta? The figure, impassive, raises a signal arm. Password. Shrine Mavis. <laughs> Merci. Esperanto. Slornlet. He mutters. Gaelic League spy sent by that fire-eater. He steps forward. A sack-shouldered ragman bars his path. He steps left. Ragsack man left. I beg. He swerves, sidles, steps aside, slips past and on. Keep to the right, right, right. If there is a finger post planted by the touring club at Step Aside, who procured that public boon? I, who lost my way and contributed to the columns of the Irish cyclists, the letter headed, In Darkest Step Aside. Keep, keep, keep to the right. Rags and bones at midnight. A fence, more likely. First place murderer makes for. Wash off his sins of the world. Jackie Caffrey, hunted by Tommy Caffrey, runs full tilt against Bloom. Oh! Shocked. On weak hams, he halts. Tommy and Jackie vanish. There? There. Bloom pats with parcel hands, watch, fob pocket, book pocket, purse pocket, sweets of sin, potato soap. <sighs> Beware of pickpockets. Old thieves dodge. Collide, then snatch your purse. The retriever approaches, sniffling, nose to the ground. A sprawled form sneezes. A stooped... Bearded figure appears, garbed in the long caftan of an elder in Zion, and a smoking cap with magenta tassels. Horned spectacles hang down at the wings of the nose. Yellow poison streaks are on the drawn face. Rudolph. Second half crown, waste money today. I told you not go with drunken goy ever. So, you catch no money. Bloom. Hides the crew bean and trotter behind his back, and crestfallen, feels warm and cold feet meet. Ya, ich weiß, Papachi. What are you making down this place? Have you no soul? 
with feeble vulture talons, he feels the silent face of Bloom. Are you not my son, Leopold, the grandson of Leopold? Are you not my dear son, Leopold, who left the house of his father and left the god of his fathers, Abraham and Jacob? Bloom, with precaution. I suppose so, father. Mosenthal, all that's left of him. Rudolph, severely. One night, they bring you home, drunk as dog, after spend your good money. What you call them running chaps. Bloom, in youth's smart blue Oxford suit, with white vest slips, narrow-shouldered, in brown alpine hat, wearing gents, sterling silver Waterbury keyless watch and double-curb Albert with seal attached, one side of him coated with stiffening mud. Harriers, father. Only that once. Once! Mud, head to foot. Cut your hand open. Lock jaw. They make you kaput, Leopold Leibman. You watch them, chaps. Bloom, weakly. They challenged me to a sprint. It was muddy. I slipped. Rudolph, with contempt. Goyam, natchez. Nice spectacles for your poor mother. Mama! Ellen Bloom, in pantomime dame's stringed mob cap, crinoline and bustle, widow Twanky's blouse with mutton leg sleeves buttoned behind, grey mittens and cameo brooch, her hair plaited in a crispine net, appears over the staircase banisters, a slanted candlestick in her hand, and cries out in shrill alarm. Oh, blessed Redeemer, what have they done to him? I smell him salts. She hauls up a reef of skirt, and ransacks the pouch of her striped blay petticoat. A file, an Agnes Dei, a shriveled potato, and a celluloid doll fall out. Great heart of Mary, where were you at all, at all? Bloom, mumbling, his eyes downcast, begins to bestow his parcels in his filled pockets, but desists, muttering. A voice, sharply. Boldy. Who? He ducks and wards off a blow clumsily. At your service. He looks up. Beside her mirage of date palms, a handsome woman in Turkish costume stands before him. Opulent curves fill out her scarlet trousers and jacket slashed with gold. A wide yellow cummerbund girdles her. A white yashmak, violet in the night, covers her face, leaving free only her large dark eyes and raven hair. Molly. Welly, Mrs. Marion from this out, my dear man, when you speak to me. Satirically. Has poor little hubby cold feet waiting so long? Bloom shifts from foot to foot. No, no, not the least little bit. He breathes in deep agitation, swallowing gulps of air. Questions, hopes, crew beans for her supper, things to tell her, excuses, desire, spellbound. A coin gleams on her forehead. On her feet are jeweled toe rings. Her ankles are linked by a slender fetter chain. Beside her, a camel, hooded with a turreting turban, waits. A silk ladder of innumerable rungs climbs to his bobbing howder. He ambles near with disgruntled hindquarters. Fiercely, she slaps his haunch. Her gold curb wrist bangles angrily, scolding him in Moorish. The camel, lifting a foreleg, plucks from a tree a large mango fruit, offers it to his mistress, blinking in his cloven hoof. Then droops his head and, grunting, with uplifted neck, fumbles to kneel. Bloom stoops his back for leapfrog. I can give you, I mean, as your business manager, uh, Mrs. Marion, if you... So, you notice some change? Her hands passing slowly over her trinketed stomacher. A slow, friendly mockery in her eyes. Oh, Poldy, Poldy, you are a poor old stick in the mud. Go and see life. See the wide world. I was just going back for that lotion, white wax, orange flower water. Shop closes early on Thursday, but the first thing in the morning. He pats Diver's pockets. This moving kidney. Ah. He points to the south, then to the east. A cake of new, clean lemon soap arises, diffusing light and perfume. We're a capital couple. Our bloom and I... He brightens the earth. I polish the sky. 
The freckled face of Sweeney, the druggist, appears in the disc of the soap sun. Three and a penny, please. Yes, uh, for my wife, Mrs. Marion. Special recipe. Marion, softly. Baldy. Yes, ma'am. In disdain, she saunters away, plump as a pampered powder pigeon, humming the duet from Don Giovanni. Are you sure about that volio? I mean the pronunciation. He follows, followed by the sniffing terrier. The elderly board seizes his sleeve, the bristles of her chin mould glittering. Ten shillings a maiden head. Fresh thing was never touched. Fifteen. There's no one in it. Only her old father that's dead drunk. She points. In the gap of her dark den, furtive, rain-bedraggled, Bridie Kelly stands. Hatch Street. Any good in your mind? With a squeak, she flaps her bat shawl and runs. A burly rough pursues with booted strides. He stumbles on the steps, recovers, plunges into gloom. Weak squeaks of laughter are heard. Weaker. The board, her wolf eyes shining. He's getting his pleasure. You won't get a virgin in the flash houses. Ten shillings. Don't be all night before the polis in plain clothes sees us. Sixty-seven is a bitch. Leering, Gertie McDowell limps forward. She draws from behind, ogling, and shows coyly her bloodied clout. With all my worldly goods, I thee and thou. She murmurs. You did that. I hate you. I? When? Uh, you're dreaming. I never saw you. Leave the gentleman alone, you cheat. Writing the gentleman false letters. Street walking and soliciting. Better for your mother take the strap to you at the bedpost, hussy like you. Gertie to Bloom. When you saw all the secrets of my bottom drawer. She pours his sleeve, slobbering. Dirty married man. I love you for doing that to me. She slides away crookedly. Mrs. Breen, in man's fries overcoat with loose bellows pockets, stands in the causeway, her roguish eyes wide open, smiling in all her herbiferous buck teeth. Mr. Bloom coughs gravely. Madam, when we last had this pleasure, by letter dated the 16th inst... Mr. Bloom, you down here in the haunts of sin. I caught you nicely, scamp. Bloom, hurriedly. Uh, Not so loud, my name. Whatever do you think me? Uh, Don't give me away. Walls have ears. How do you do? It's ages since I... You're looking splendid. Absolutely it. Seasonable weather we are having this time of year. Black. Refracts heat. Shortcut home here. Interesting quarter. Rescue of fallen women. Magdalene Asylum. I am the secretary. Mrs. Breen holds up a finger. Now, don't tell a big fib. I know somebody won't like that. Oh, just wait till I see Molly. Slyly. Account for yourself this very minute or woe betide you. Bloom looks behind. <clears throat> she often said she'd like to visit. Slamming. The exotic, you see. Negro servants, too, in livery if she had money. Othello, black brute. Eugene Stratton, even the bones and corner man at the Livermore Christie's. Bohe brothers. Sweep, for that matter. Tom and Sam Bohe, coloured coons in white duck suits, scarlet socks, upstarched Sambo chokers and large scarlet asters in their buttonholes leap out. Each has his banjo slung. Their paler, smaller, negroid hands jingle the twing-twang wires. Flashing white kaffir eyes and tusks, they rattle through a breakdown in clumsy clogs, twinging, singing, back to back, toe heel, heel toe, with smack fat clacking nigger lips. There's someone in the house with Dinah, there's someone in the house I know, there's someone in the house with Dinah, playing on the old banjo. They whisk black masks from raw babby faces. Then, chuckling, chortling, trumming, twanging, they diddle-diddle cakewalk dance away. Bloom, with a sour, tenderish smile. A little frivol, shall we, if you are so inclined? Would you like me, perhaps, to embrace you just for a fraction of a second? Mrs. Breen screams gaily. Oh, you rock! You ought to see yourself. For old sake's sake. I only meant a square party, a mixed marriage mingling of our different little conjugials. You know I had a soft corner for you. Gloomily. 
It was I sent you that valentine of the dear gazelle. Glory, Alice, you do look a holy show. Killing simply. She puts out her hand inquisitively. What are you hiding behind your back? Tell us there's a dear. Bloom seizes her wrist with his free hand. Josie Powell that was. Prettiest Deb in Dublin. How time flies by. Do you remember harking back in a retrospective arrangement? Old Christmas night, Georgina Simpson's housewarming while they were playing the Irving Bishop game, finding the pin blindfold and thought reading. Subject, what is in this snuffbox? You were the lion of the night with your serio-comic recitation, and you looked the part. You were always a favourite with the ladies. Bloom, squire of dames, in dinner jacket, with watered silk facings, Blue Masonic badge in his buttonhole, black bow and mother-of-pearl studs, a prismatic champagne glass tilted in his hand. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Ireland home and beauty. The dear dead days beyond recall, love's old sweet song. Bloom, meaningfully dropping his voice. I confess I'm teapot with curiosity to find out whether some person's something is a little teapot at present. Mrs. Breen, gushingly. Tremendously teapot, London's teapot, and I'm simply teapot all over me. She rubs sides with him. After the parlour mystery games and the crackers from the tree, we sat on the staircase ottoman under the mistletoe to his company. Bloom, wearing a purple Napoleon hat with an amber half-moon, his fingers and thumbs passing slowly down to her soft, moist, meaty palm, which she surrenders gently. The witching hour of night. I took the splinter out of this hand carefully, slowly. Tenderly, as he slips on her finger a ruby ring. La ci darem la mano. Mrs. Breen, in a one-piece evening frock, executed in moonlight blue, a tinsel silk diadem on her brow, with her dance card fallen beside her moon-blue satin slipper, curves her palm softly. Breathing quickly. Volume none. Your heart you scalding. The left hand nearest the heart. When you made your present choice, they said it was beauty and the beast. I can never forgive you for that. His clenched fist at his brow. Think what it means. All you meant to me then. Hoarsely. Woman, it's breaking me. Dennis Breen. White tall-hatted, with Wisdom Healy's sandwich board, shuffles past them in carpet slippers, his dull beard thrust out, muttering to right and left. Little Alf Bergen, cloaked in the pall of the Ace of Spades, dogs him to left and right, doubled in laughter. Alf Bergen points, jeering at the sandwich boards. You pay up! Mrs. Breen, to Bloom. High jinks below stairs. She gives him the glad eye. Why didn't you kiss the spot to make it well? You wanted to. Bloom, shocked. Molly's best friend, could you? Mrs. Breen, her pulpy tongue between her lips, offers a pigeon kiss. Mm, the answer is a lemon. Have you a little present for me there? Bloom, off-handedly. Uh, kosher, a snack for supper. The home without potted meat is incomplete. I was at Lear, Mrs. Banman Palmer, trenchant exponent of Shakespeare. Unfortunately, threw away the programme. Rattling good place round there for pig's feet. Feel. Richie Golding, three ladies' hats pinned on his head, appears, weighted to one side by the black legal bag of Collis and Ward, on which a skull and crossbones are painted in white lime wash. He opens it and shows it full of polonies, kippered herrings, Findon haddies and tight-packed pills. Richie. Best value in dog. Bald Pat, bothered beetle, stands on the curbstone, folding his napkin, waiting to wait. Pat advances with a tilted dish of spill-spilling gravy. Steak and kidney, bottle of lager. <laughs> wait till I wait. Good God, I never ate in all. With hanging head, he marches doggedly forward. The navvy, lurching by, gores him with his flaming pronghorn. Richie, with a cry of pain, his hand to his back. Ah! Bright lights! Bloom points to the navvy. A spy. Don't attract attention. I hate stupid crowds. 
I am not on pleasure bent. I am in a grave predicament. Humbugging and deluthering as per usual with your cock and bull story. I want to tell you a little secret about how I came to be here. But you must never tell, not even Molly. I have a most particular reason. Mrs. Breen, all agog. Oh, not for worlds. Let's walk on, shall us? Let's. The board makes an unheeded sign. Bloom walks on with Mrs. Breen. The terrier follows, whining piteously, wagging his tail. The board. Jew man's melt. Bloom, in an oatmeal sporting suit, a sprig of woodbine in the lapel, Tony buff shirt, shepherd's plaid St. Andrew's cross scarf tie, white spats, fawn dust coat on his arm, tawny red brogues, field glasses in bandolier and a grey billycock hat. Do you remember a long, long time, years and years ago, just after Millie, marionette we called her, was weaned when we all went together to fairy house races, was it? Mrs. Breen, in smart sacks tailor-made, white velour hat and spider veil. Leopardstown. I mean Leopardstown. And Molly won seven shillings on a three-year-old named Never Tell. And coming home along by Fox Rock in that old five-seater Shandradan of a wagonette, you were in your heyday then, and you had on that new hat of white velour with a surround of mole fur, which Mrs. Hayes advised you to buy because it was marked down to 19 and 11, a bit of wire and an old rag of velveteen, and I lay you what you like she did it on purpose. She did, of course, the cat. Don't tell me. Nice advisor. Because it didn't suit you one quarter as well as that other ducky little tammy toque with the bird of paradise wing in it that I admired on you, and you honestly looked just too fetching in it, though it was a pity to kill it, you cruel creature, little mite of a thing with a heart the size of a full stop. Mrs. Breen squeezes his arm, simpers. Naughty, cruel I was. Bloom, low, secretly, ever more rapidly. And Molly was eating a sandwich of spiced beef out of Mrs. Joe Gallagher's lunch basket. Frankly, though she had her advisers or admirers, I never cared much for her style. She was... Too... Uh, yes, and Molly was laughing because Rogers and Maggot O'Reilly were mimicking a cock as we passed a farmhouse. And Marcus Tertius Moses, the tea merchant, drove past us in a gig with his daughter. Dancer Moses was her name. And the poodle in her lap bridled up. And you asked me if I ever heard or read or knew or came across... Mrs. Breen, eagerly. Yes, 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 yes. She fades from his side. Followed by the whining dog, he walks on towards Hell's Gates. In an archway, a standing woman, bent forward, her feet apart, pisses cowardly. Outside a shuttered pub, a bunch of loiterers listen to a tale which their broken-snouted gaffer rasps out with raucous humour. An armless pair of them flop, wrestling, growling, in maimed, sudden play-fight. The gaffer crouches, his voice twisted in his snout. And when Cairns came down from the scaffolding in Beaver Street, what was he out to do with his inter? Only inter to book a porter that was there waiting on the shavings for Darwin's plasterers. <laughs> the loiterers guffaw with cleft pellets. Oh, their paint-speckled hats wag. Spattered with size and lime of their lodges, they frisk limblessly about him. Coincidence, too. They think it funny. Anything but that. Broad daylight, trying to walk. Lucky no woman. Jeez, that's a good one. Oh, jays, into the men's porter. Bloom passes. Cheap whores, singly, coupled, shawled, disheveled, call from lanes, doors, corners. Now you're going far, queer fella. How's your middle leg? Got a match on you. Hey, come here till I stiffen it for you. He plodges through their sump towards the lighted street beyond. From a bulge of window curtains, a gramophone rears a battered brazen trunk. In the shadow, a she-bean keeper haggles with the navvy and the two redcoats. The navvy, belching. Where's the bloody house? The she-bean keeper. Horden Street. Chilling a bottle of stout. Respectable woman. The navvy, gripping the two redcoats, staggers forward with them. Come on, you British army. Private car behind his back. He ain't half barmy. Private Compton laughs. What ho? Private car to the navvy. Portobello Barracks, canteen. You ask for car. 
Josh Carr. The navvy shouts. We are the boys of Wexford. Say, what price the Sergeant Major? Bennett, he's my pal. I love old Bennett. The galling chain and free your native land. He staggers forward, dragging them with him. Bloom stops at fault. The dog approaches, his tongue out lolling, panting. Wild goose chase this. Disorderly houses. Lord knows where they're gone. Drunks cover distance double quick. Nice mix-up. Seen at Westland Row. Then jump in first class with third ticket. Then too far. Train with engine behind. Might have taken me to Malahide or a siding for the night or collision. Second drink does it. Once is a dose. What am I following him for? Still, he's the best of that lot. If I hadn't heard about Mrs. Beaufoy, Purifoy, I wouldn't have gone and wouldn't have met. Kismet. He'll lose that cash. Relieving officer. Good biz for cheapjacks, organs. What do you lack? Soon got, soon gone. Might have lost my life, too, with that mangong, wheel-track, trolley-glare juggernaut only for presence of mind. Can't always save you, though. If I had passed Trulock's window that day, two minutes later would have been shot. Absence of body. Still, if bullet only went through my coat, get damages for shock. Five hundred pounds. What was he? Kildare Street Club Toff. God help his gamekeeper. He gazes ahead, reading on the wall a scrawled chalk legend. Wet dream. And a phallic design. Odd. Molly, drawing on the frosted carriage pane at Kingstown. What's that like? Gaudy dull women loll in the lighted doorways, in window embrasures, smoking bird's-eye cigarettes. The odour of the six-sweet weed floats towards him in slow, round, overling wreaths. The wreaths. Sweet are sweets, sweets of sin. My spine's a bit limp. Go or turn. And this food. Eat it and get all pig-sticky. Absurd I am. Waste of money. One and eightpence too much. The retriever drives a cold, snivelling muzzle against his hand, wagging his tail. Strange how they take to me. Even that brute today. Better speak to him first. Like women, they like rencontre. Stinks like a polecat. Chacon Sango? He might be mad. Fido? Uncertain in his movements. Good fellow. Gary Owen? The wolf dog sprawls on his back, wriggling obscenely with begging paws, his long black tongue lolling out. Influence of his surroundings. Give and have done with it, provided nobody. Calling encouraging words, he shambles back with a furtive poacher's tread, dogged by the setter into a dark, Stale stunk corner. He unrolls one parcel and goes to dump the crew bean softly, but holds back and feels the trotter. Sizable for threepence, but then I have it in my left hand. Calls for more effort. Why? Smaller, from want of use. Oh, let it slide, two and six. With regret, he lets unrolled crew bean and trotter slide. The mastiff... Mauls the bundle clumsily and guts himself with growling greed, crunching the bones. Two rain-caped watch approach, silent, vigilant. They murmur together. Bloom of bloom for bloom, bloom. Each lays a hand on Bloom's shoulder. First watch. Caught in the act, commit no nuisance. Bloom stammers. I am doing good to others. A covey of gulls. Storm petrels rises hungrily from Liffey slime with Banbury cakes in their beaks. The friend of man trained by kindness. He points. Bob Doran, toppling from a high bar stool, sways over the munching spaniel. Cosa, give us the paw. Give the paw. The bulldog growls, his scruff standing, a gobbet of pig's knuckle between his molars, through which rapid scum-spittle dribbles. 
Bob Doran falls silently into an area. Second watch. Prevention of cruelty to animals. Bloom, enthusiastically. A noble work. I scolded that tram driver on Harold's Cross Bridge for ill-using the poor horse with his harness cab. Bad French I got for my pains. Of course, it was frosty in the last tram. All tales of circus life are highly demoralizing. Signor Maffei, passion pale in lion tamer's costume with diamond studs in his shirt front, steps forward, holding a circus paper hoop, a curling carriage whip and a revolver with which he covers the gorging boar hound. Signor Maffei, with a sinister smile. Ladies and gentlemen, my educated ground. It was I broke in the bucking bronco Ajax with my patent spiked saddle for carnivores. Lash under the belly with a knotted thong. Block, tackle, and a strangling pulley will bring your lion to heel, no matter how fractious. Even Leo Ferox there, the Libyan man-eater. A red-hot crowbar and some liniment rubbing on the burning part produced Fritz of Amsterdam, the thinking hyena. He glares. I possess the Indian sign. The Gunt. Of my eye does it with these breast sparklers. With a bewitching smile. I now introduce Mademoiselle Ruby, the pride of the ring. Come, name and address. I have uh, forgotten for the moment. Ah, yes. He takes off his high-grade hat, saluting. Dr. Bloom, Leopold, dental surgeon. You have heard of Von Bloom Pasha, umpteen millions, Donnerwetter, owns half Austria, Egypt. Cousin. Proof. A card falls from inside the leather headband of Bloom's hat. Bloom, in red fez, Cuddy's dress coat with broad green sash, wearing a false badge of the Legion of Honor, picks up the card hastily and offers it. Allow me. My club is the Junior Army and Navy. Solicitors, Messrs. John Henry Menton, 27 Bachelor's Walk. First watch reads. Henry Flower, no fixed abode. Unlawfully watching and besetting. Second watch. An alibi. You are cautioned. Bloom produces from his heart pocket a crumpled yellow flower. This is the flower in question. It was given me by a man. I don't know his name. Plausibly. You know that old joke, Rose of Castile, Bloom, the change of name, Virag. He murmurs privately and confidentially. We are engaged, you see, Sergeant. Lady in the case. Love entanglement. He shoulders the second watch gently. Dash it all. It's a way we gallants have in the Navy. Uniform that does it. He turns gravely to the first watch. Still, of course, you do get your Waterloo sometimes. Drop in some evening and have a glass of old Burgundy. To the second watch, gaily. I'll introduce you, Inspector. She's game. Do it in the shake of a lamb's tail. A dark, mercurialized face appears, leading a veiled figure. The dark Mercury. The castle is looking for him. He was drummed out of the army. Martha, thick-veiled, a crimson halter round her neck, a copy of the Irish Times in her hand, in tone of reproach, pointing. Henry! Leopold! Leopold! Lionel! Thou lost one! Clear my name! First watch, sternly. Come to the station. Bloom, scared, hats himself, steps back, then... Plucking at his heart and lifting his right forearm on the square, he gives the sign and due guard of fellow craft. No, no, worshipful master, light of love. Mistaken identity. The Lyon male, Lesurk and Dubosc. You remember the child's fratricide case? We medical men. By striking him dead with a hatchet. I am wrongfully accused. Better one guilty escape than ninety-nine wrongfully condemned. Martha, sobbing behind her veil. Breach of promise. My real name is Peggy Griffin. He wrote to me that he was miserable. I'll tell my brother the Bechtel Rugger full back on you, heartless flirt. Bloom, behind his hand. She's drunk. The woman is inebriated. He murmurs vaguely the past of her frame. Shit, Broilit. Second watch, tears in his eyes to Bloom. Ought to be thoroughly well ashamed of yourself. Gentlemen of the jury, let me explain. A pure mare's nest, I am a man misunderstood. I am being made a scapegoat of. I 
am a respectable married man without a stain on my character. I live in Eccles Street. My wife. I am the daughter of a most distinguished commander, a gallant, upstanding gentleman who... Who do you call him? Major General Brian Tweedy, one of Britain's fighting men who helped win our battles. Got his majority for the heroic defence of Rourke's Drift. Regiment. Bloom turns to the gallery. The Royal Dublins. Boys, the salt of the earth. Known the world over. I think I see some old comrades in arms up there among you. The RDF, with our own metropolitan police, guardians of our homes, the pluckiest lads and the finest body of men as physique in the service of our sovereign. A voice. Turncoat, up the boys! Who built Joe Chamberlain? Bloom, his hand on the shoulder of the first watch. My old dad, too, was a J.P., I'm as staunch a Britisher as you are, sir. I fought with the colours for king and country in the absent-minded war under General Goff in the park and was disabled at Spionkop and Bloemfontein was mentioned in dispatches. I did all a white man good. With quiet feeling. Jim Bloodsoe. Hold her nozzle again the bank. Professional trade. Well, I follow a literary occupation. Author, journalist. In fact, we are just bringing out a collection of prize stories of which I am the inventor. Something that is an entirely new departure. I am connected with the British and Irish press. If you ring up... Miles Crawford strides out jerkily, a quill between his teeth. His scarlet beak blazes within the aureole of his straw hat. He dangles a hank of Spanish onions in one hand and holds with the other hand a telephone receiver nozzle to his ear. Miles Crawford... His cock wattles wagging. Hello? 7784? Hello? Freeman's urinal and weekly asswiper here. Paradise Europe? You witch. Blue bags? Who writes? Is it Bloom? Mr. Philip Beaufoy, pale-faced, stands in the witness box, in accurate morning dress, out-breast pocket with peak of handkerchief showing, creased lavender trousers, and patent boots. He carries a large portfolio labelled Matcham's Masterstrokes. Beaufoy drawls. No, you aren't. Not by a long shot if I know it. I don't see it, that's all. No born gentleman, no one with the most rudimentary promptings of a gentleman would stoop to such particularly loathsome conduct. One of those, my lord. A plagiarist. A soapy sneak masquerading as a literateur. It's perfectly obvious that with the most inherent baseness he has cribbed some of my best-selling books... Really gorgeous stuff, a perfect gem, the love passages in which are beneath suspicion. The Beaufoy books of love and great possessions with which your lordship is doubtless familiar are a household word throughout the kingdom. Bloom murmurs with hangdog meekness. That bit about the laughing witch hand in hand, I take exception to, if I may. Beaufoy, his lip upcurled, smiles superciliously on the court. You funny ass, you. You're too beastly awfully weird for words. I don't think you need over-excessively disincommodate yourself in that regard. My literary agent, Mr. J.B. Pinker, is in attendance. I presume, my lord, we shall receive the usual witnesses' fees, shan't we? We are considerably out of pocket over this bally pressman, Johnny, this jackdaw of Reims, who has not even been to a university. Bloom, indistinctly. University of life, bad art. Beaufoy shouts. It's a damnably foul lie, showing the moral rottenness of the man. He extends his portfolio. We have here damning evidence, the corpus delicti, my lord, a specimen of my maturer work, disfigured by the hallmark of the beast. A voice from the gallery. Moses, Moses, king of the Jews, wiped his ass in the daily news. Bloom, bravely. Overdrawn! You low cad! You ought to be ducked in the horse pond, you rotter. To the court. Why, look at the man's private life, leading a quadruple existence, street angel and house devil. Not fit to be mentioned in mixed society. The arch-conspirator of the age. Bloom to the court. And he, a bachelor? How? First watch. The king versus Bloom. Call the woman Driscoll. The crier. Mary Driscoll! Scullery maid! Mary Driscoll, a slipshod servant girl, approaches. She has a bucket on the crook of her arm and a scouring brush in her hand. Second watch. Another? Are you of the unfortunate class? Mary Driscoll, indignantly. I'm not a bad one. I bear a respectable character and was four months in my last place. I was in a situation, six pounds a year and my chances with Fridays out. 
and I had to leave owing to his carryings on. What do you tax him with? He made a certain suggestion, but I thought more of myself as poor as I am. Bloom, in house jacket of ripple cloth, flannel trousers, heelless slippers, unshaven, his hair rumpled softly. I treated you white. I gave you mementos, smart emerald garters far above your station. Incautiously, I took your part when you were accused of pilfering. There's a medium in all things. Play cricket. Mary Driscoll, excitedly. As God is looking down on me this night, if ever I laid a hand to them oysters. The offence complained of, did something happen? He surprised me in the rear of the premises, Your Honour, when the missus was out shopping one morning with a request for a safety pin. He held me, and I was discoloured in four places as a result. And he interfered twice with my clothing. She counter-assaulted. Mary Driscoll, scornfully. I had more respect for the skirm brush, so I had. I remonstrated with him, Your Lord, and he remarked, Keep it quiet. <laughs> General laughter. George Futrell, Clerk of the Crown and Peace, resonantly. Order in court. The accused will now make a bogus statement. Bloom, pleading not guilty and holding a full-blown water lily, begins a long, unintelligible speech. They would hear what counsel had to say in his stirring address to the grand jury. He was down and out, but, though branded as a black sheep, if he might say so, he meant to reform, to retrieve the memory of the past in a purely sisterly way and return to nature as a purely domestic animal. A seven-month child, he had been carefully brought up and nurtured by an aged, bedridden parent. There might have been lapses of an erring father, but he wanted to turn over a new leaf. And now, when at long last in sight of the whipping post, to lead a homely life in the evening of his days, permeated by the affectionate surroundings of the heaving bosom of the family. An acclimatized Britisher, he had seen that summer eve from the footplate of an engine cab of the Loop Line Railway Company, while the rain refrained from falling, glimpses, as it were, through the windows of loveful households in Dublin City and urban district, of scenes truly rural, of happiness of the better land, with Dockrell's wallpaper at one and ninepence a dozen, Innocent British-born bairns lisping prayers to the sacred infant. Youthful scholars grappling with their pen sums. Model young ladies playing on the pianoforte. Or anon, all with fervour, reciting the family rosary round the crackling new log. While in the boreens and green lanes, the colleens with their swains strolled what times the strains of the organ-toned melodeon. Britannia, metal-bound, with four acting stops and twelve-fold bellows. A sacrifice, greatest bargain ever. <laughs> Renewed laughter. He mumbles incoherently. Reporters complain that they cannot hear. Longhand and shorthand, without looking up from their notebooks. Loosen his boots! Professor McHugh, from the press table, coughs and calls. <laughs> Cover up, man! Get it out in bits! The cross-examination proceeds re Bloom and the bucket. A large bucket. Bloom himself. Bowel trouble. In Beaver Street. Gripe, yes. Quite bad. A plasterer's bucket. By walking stiff-legged. Suffered untold misery. Deadly agony. About noon. Love or burgundy. Yes, some spinach. Crucial moment. He did not look in the bucket. Nobody. Rather a mess. Not completely. A titbit's back number. <laughs> Uproar and catcalls. Bloom in a torn frock coat stained with whitewash, dinged silk hat sideways on his head, a strip of sticking plaster across his nose, talks inaudibly. J.J. O'Malloy, in barrister's grey wig and stuff gown, speaking with a voice of pained protest. Uh, this is no place for indecent levity at the expense of an erring mortal disguised in liquor. We are not in a beer garden, nor at an Oxford rag, nor is this a travesty of justice. 
My client is an infant, a poor foreign immigrant who started scratch as a stowaway and is now trying to turn an honest penny. The trumped-up misdemeanor was due to a momentary aberration of heredity, brought on by hallucination. Such familiarities as the alleged guilty occurrence being quite permitted in my client's native place, uh, the land of the pharaoh. Prima facie, I put it to you that there was no attempt at carnally knowing. Intimacy did not occur, and the offence complained of by Driscoll, that her virtue was solicited, was not repeated. I would deal in especial with atavism. There have been cases of shipwreck and somnambulism in my client's family. If the accused could speak, he could a tale unfold, one of the strangest that have ever been narrated between the covers of a book. He himself, my lord, is a physical wreck from Cobbler's weak chest. His submission is that he is of Mongolian extraction and irresponsible for his actions. Not all there, in fact. Bloom, barefoot, pigeon-breasted, in Lasker's vest and trousers, apologetic toes turned in, opens his tiny mole's eyes and looks about him dazedly, passing a slow hand across his forehead. Then he hitches his belt sailor-fashion, and with a shrug of oriental obeisance, salutes the court, pointing one thumb heavenward. Him makey very muchy fine night? He begins to lilt simply. Lily poor little child, blinky pickfoot every night, pay two shilling. He is howled down. J.J. O'Malloy, hotly to the populace. This is a lone hand fight. By head is, I will not have any client of mine gagged and badgered in this fashion by a pack of cores and laughing hyenas. The mosaic code has superseded the law of the jungle. I say it, and I say it emphatically, without wishing for one moment to defeat the ends of justice. Accused was not accessory before the act, and prosecutrix has not been tampered with. The young person was treated by defendant as if she were his very own daughter. Bloom takes J.J. O'Malloy's hand and raises it to his lips. I shall call rebutting evidence to prove, up to the hilt, that the hidden hand is again at its old game. When in doubt, persecute Bloom. My client, an innately bashful man, would be the last man in the world to do anything ungentlemanly which injured modesty could object to or cast a stone at a girl who took the wrong turning when some dastard responsible for her condition had worked his own sweet will on her. He wants to go straight. I regard him as the whitest man I know. He is down on his luck at present, owing to the mortgaging of his extensive property at Agendath Natame in faraway Asia Minor, slides of which will now be shown. To Bloom. I suggest that you will do the handsome thing. A penny in the pound. The mirage of the Lake of Kinnereth, with blurred cattle cropping in silver haze, is projected on the wall. Moses Lugatz, ferret-eyed albino, in blue dungarees, stands up in the gallery, holding in each hand an orange citron and a pork kidney. Lugatz, hoarsely. Blight the trial stress, Belgium, W. 
Thirteen. J.J.O. Malloy steps onto a low plinth and holds the lapel of his coat with solemnity. His face lengthens, grows pale and bearded with sunken eyes, the blotters of thysis and hectic cheekbones of John F. Taylor. He applies his handkerchief to his mouth and scrutinizes the galloping tide of rose-pink blood. J.J. O'Malloy, almost voicelessly. Excuse me. I am suffering from a severe chill. Have recently come from a sick bed. A few well-chosen words. He assumes the avine head, foxy moustache, and proboscidal eloquence of Seymour Bush. When the angel's book comes to be opened, if aught that the pensive bosom has inaugurated of soul-transfigured and of soul-transfiguring deserves to live, I say... Accord the prisoner at the bar the sacred benefit of the doubt. A paper with something written on it is handed into court. Bloom, in court dress. Can give best references. Messrs. Callan, Coleman, Mr. Wisdom Healy, J.P., my old chief, Joe Cuff, Mr. V.B. Dillon, ex-Lord Mayor of Dublin. I have moved in the charmed circle of the highest queens of Dublin society. Carelessly. I was just chatting this afternoon at the Viceregal Lodge to my old pals, Sir Robert and Lady Ball, Astronomer Royal at the levee. Sir Bob, I said. Mrs. Yelverson Barry, in low corsaged opal ball dress and elbow-length ivory gloves, wearing a sable-trimmed brick quilted dolman, a comb of brilliance, and panache of osprey in her hair. Arrest him, constable. He wrote me an anonymous letter in printer's backhand when my husband was in the north riding of Tipperary on the Munster circuit, signed James Lovebirch. He said that he had seen from the gods my peerless globes as I sat in a box of the Theatre Royal at a command performance of La Cigale. I deeply inflamed him, he said. He made improper overtures to me to misconduct myself at half-past four p.m. on the following Thursday, dancing time. He offered to send me through the post a work of fiction by Monsieur Paul de Kock entitled The Girl with the Three Pairs of Stays. Mrs. Bellingham, in cap and seal coney mantle, wrapped up to the nose, steps out of her brougham and scans through tortoiseshell quizzing glasses which she takes from inside her huge opossum muff. Also to me. Yes, I believe it is the same objectionable person. Because he closed my carriage door outside Sir Thornley Stoker's one sleety day during the cold snap of February 93, when even the grid of the waste pipe and ball stop in my bath cistern were frozen. Subsequently, he enclosed a bloom of Edelweiss, culled on the heights, as he said, in my honour. I had it examined by a botanical expert and elicited the information that it was a blossom of the homegrown potato plant, purloined from a forcing case of the model farm. Shame on him! A crowd of sluts and ragamuffins surges forward, screaming. Stop thief! Hooray there, Bluebeard! Second watch produces handcuffs. Here are the Darbies. Mrs. Bellingham. He addressed me in several handwritings with fulsome compliments as a Venus in furs and alleged profound pity for my frostbound coachman, Barmer, while in the same breath he expressed himself as envious of his ear flaps and fleecy sheepskins and of his fortunate proximity to my person when standing behind my chair wearing my livery and the armorial bearings of the Bellinger escutcheon, a garnished sable, a buck's head, cooped oar. He lauded almost extravagantly my nether extremities, my swelling calves in silk hose drawn up to the limit, and eulogized glowingly my other hidden treasures in priceless lace, which he said he could conjure up. He urged me, stating that he felt it his mission in life to urge me to defile the marriage bed, to commit adultery at the earliest possible opportunity. The Honorable Mrs. Mervyn Tallboys, in Amazon costume, hard hat, jackboots, cockspurred, vermilion waistcoat, fawn musketeer gauntlets with braided drums, long train held up, and hunting crop, with which she strikes her wealth constantly. Also me, because he saw me on the polo ground of the Phoenix Park at the match All-Ireland versus the rest of Ireland. 
My eyes, I know, shone divinely as I watched Captain Slogger Dennehy of the Inner Skillings win the final chucker on his darling Cobb Centaur. This plebeian Don Juan observed me from behind a hackney car and sent me in double envelopes an obscene photograph, such as are sold after dark on Paris boulevards, insulting to any lady. I have it still. It represents a partially nude senorita, frail and lovely, his wife, as he solemnly assured me, taken by him from nature, practicing illicit intercourse with a muscular torero, evidently a blackguard. He urged me to do likewise, to misbehave, to sin with officers of the garrison. He implored me to soil his letter in an unspeakable manner, to chastise him as he richly deserves, to bestride and ride him, to give him a most vicious horse-whipping. Mrs. Bellingham. Me too. Mrs. Yelverton Barry. Me too. Several highly respectable Dublin ladies hold up in proper letters received from Bloom. The Honourable Mrs. Mervyn Tallboys stamps her jingling spurs in a sudden paroxysm of sudden fury. I will, by the God above me. I'll scourge the pigeon-livered cur as long as I can stand over him. I'll slay him alive. Bloom, his eyes closing, quails expectantly. Here? He squirms. Again? He pants, cringing. I love the danger. Very much so. I'll make it hot for you. I'll make you dance Jack Latin for that. And his breech well, the upstart. Write the stars and stripes on it. Disgraceful. There's no excuse for him. A married man. All these people. I meant only the spanking idea. A warm, tingling glow without effusion. Refined birching to stimulate the circulation. The Honorable Mrs. Mervyn Tallboys laughs derisively. <laughs> Did you, my fine fellow? Well, by the living God, you'll get the surprise of your life now. Believe me. The most unmerciful hiding a man ever bargained for. You have lashed the dormant tigress in my nature into fury. Mrs. Bellingham shakes her muff and quizzing glasses vindictively. Make him smart, Hannah, dear. Give him ginger. Thrash the mongrel within an inch of his life. The cat and nine tails. Geld him. Vivisect him. Bloom, shuddering, shrinking, joins his hands with hangdog mien. Oh, cold. Oh, shivery. It was your ambrosial beauty. Forget, forgive, kiss me. Let me off this once. He offers the other cheek. Mrs. Yelverton Barry severely... Don't do so on any account, Mrs. Tallboys. He should be soundly trounced. The Honourable Mrs. Mervyn Tallboys unbuttoning her gauntlet violently. I'll do no such thing. Pig dog, and always was, ever since he was pupped. To dare address me. I'll flog him black and blue in the public streets. I'll... Dig my spurs in him up to the rowel. He is a well-known cuckold. She swishes her hunting crop savagely in the air. Take down his trousers without loss of time. Come here, sir. Quick, ready. Bloom, trembling, beginning to obey. The weather has been so warm. 